You were listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode 180. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. I am in addiction recovery. I'm going to get right to the show because we have a lot of really awesome information to cover. And first and foremost, excellent feedback. Last week's show has gotten a lot of comments in my DMs, various emails, because we talk about um, the spiritual side of our addiction recovery, of our journey in life, morals, ethics, values, opinions, beliefs. And uh, as my mentor would like to say, put put it on a bumper sticker. Say it specifically and clearly in order for there to be maximum impact. So a quick review of last week's show. Ethics. Ethics are about the rule society has for people within that society. So whether it be the United States of America, whether it be a, a specific religion, a specific country, if you are within that um, purview of what they call a society, those are the ethics. So you might have ethics of, you know, certain countries in the Middle East and in Western Europe and, you know, all over the world. Every single country, every single state, every single city is going to have their own ethical behaviors. Think about PETA. It's the people for the ethical treatment of animals. The ethical treatment is what society deems as the ethical treatment of animals. In other societies, the way we might deem ethical treatment of animals could be extremely different. There might be other societies that would eat a, a dog or a cat or a monkey or, and you know, we would not. Of course, we eat cows and pigs, and there are other countries who do not condone that behavior. That is the ethical treatment of animals. That is the ethical way that you can eat within that society, within that organization. So the ethics are the rule society has for people within that subset of the human existence on this planet. Whereas your morals are that are rules you have for yourself. So if your religion says don't eat pork and you are okay with eating pork, then that would not be breaking a moral rule for yourself. It might be breaking an ethical rule of your religion, but not a moral rule for yourself. And, you know, you can often find people having sort of this split in themselves whenever the um, ethics of a society might go against their morals or when their morals uh, and what they believe are rules for themselves go against the ethics of society. So when you're looking at ethics and morals, it's very clear. One is about society. One is about yourself. Values are what you attach to your ethics and morals. So if you value um, the ethical treatment of animals, I have no idea why I'm choosing that one as the main go-to example, but probably because it's got the word ethical in it. So don't think anything else. Um, Just focus on that. Values, if you value um, being kind, if you value being loving, then you're going to have a certain ethical treatment towards even a strange dog on the street Whereas if you value your, let's say, uh, I don't know, personal space, or you value keeping germs away from you, you might, you know, be act very differently towards the strange dog on the street than someone who values connectedness to animals. 
they might walk up to a strange dog and want to pet it on its head, where somebody else who values cleanliness and doesn't want germs on them might very well want to turn the other way and walk. Um, both are fine behaviors because it's not like you're trying to cause mischievousness and harm to the dog. One wants to pet the dog. The other person doesn't want to pet the dog. It's all about values. Um, if you value, uh, I don't know, cruelty and things of that nature, well, then certainly there is a whole other conversation there. But most people are, are going to be valuing things that are important to them, and it's going to be um, love, connectedness, independence, freedom. I mean, it, it's, you know, if you can Google, I'm going to do it while I'm literally on the microphone, and values list. I mean, it just, there's just a bazillion of them pop up, and you've got core values, loyalty, spirituality, humility, compassion, honesty, kindness, integrity, selflessness. These are things that are important to you, and those will be um, anchored into your ethics and your morals. Beliefs and opinions. Um, beliefs are hardwired into you. They are much more difficult to change because we latch onto them. We often attach identity statements like I am a hard worker. So therefore you have a, obviously you have a belief that you are a hard worker because you've attached an I am statement to it, which means that you are latching a part of your identity onto being a hard worker. You know, if this is where religion can get people to literally travel across seas and fight one another because the belief system around that particular religion is so strong and anchored in, it becomes fervor, this fervent behavior where you will literally go across the lands to attack people who have a different belief system. Um, obviously, this is still very much happening in our world today, but it was absolutely prevalent Back in the day, you can look back and see that religion was the fuel for expansionism, colonialism, um, you know, even going far so far back as like Genghis Khan and the Gauls and people like that. Um, it was this desire to to spread their religious beliefs, to spread their cultural beliefs, to spread their DNA. It was what fueled societies back in the day. Um, we might disguise it nowadays as being for other things, resources and money and power, um, but it's still very much prevalent in today's world, this idea that our belief system around religion can literally fuel wars all the way across the world. An opinion is something that is generally a lot more loosely held, and you can have an opinion about religion, you can have an opinion about the best condiment, like I used as last week's example, and it's something that can be more easily discussed between people, whereas a belief um, done in an unemotionally intelligent way will actually cause people to argue and perhaps even fight. So that's a quick re review of what we discussed last week. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up is I got on a call or a text messaging uh, with Kaylin, who's the reason why that whole episode happened, because he had asked about, um, I believe he had asked about guilt and shame. Um, well, no, 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 he did not. It was about, um, it was about morals, ethics, values. It was about spirituality. He asked a question in the tribe Voxer chat about spirituality. And then that's what brought about the whole episode. And when we were texting afterwards, 
one of the things that was really interesting is that a connection I made after the microphone was turned off was that, so you have ethics and that's about society's rules and you have morals, which are about your rules. And we've discussed shame and guilt before, and that's what's going to be highlighted in today's episode is this idea of what is shame and guilt and how do you tell the two apart? And I'm going to give you some definitions that I've, you know, scoured from all of the different places you can on the internet. And, and it's generally the same energy around guilt versus shame. For first, I'll, I'll remind you how I have um, discussed it in the past. And I have said that shame is what you feel when you, whenever you do something against somebody else, when you break the rules that society has. Whereas guilt is something that you feel like you did uh, when you broke your own internal rule. When you did something, you can do something wrong towards somebody else, right? But if they don't necessarily know about it, would you feel shame or would you just feel guilt, right? Whereas if you were, you know, to, um, you know, let's say take money out of your, one of your family members' purses, your wallets, right? If nobody ever called it out, nobody ever said anything, you could feel guilt for stealing from a family member, But if somebody literally caught you in the act and then went and told the rest of the family, or even if they just kept it amongst themselves, but but right there in that moment, they, you know, they walked in, they were like, what the hell are you doing? Right now you feel shame because you have wronged somebody, you have broken a family rule and you have been caught. Whereas if you didn't get caught, nobody in the family noticed, then you might, you would still feel some level of guilt at some point, but you may not feel shame. And what was really interesting to me was how I had missed out on bringing this up last week, the connection of shame and guilt and morals and ethics. Ethics to me is whenever you break, uh, not to me, I mean, that's from my research, it's a societal rule. So, so therefore, the way I categorize shame has breaking a societal rule. Therefore, when you go against the ethical rules of society, you will feel shame. That will be the emotion that you will get from that. Whereas when you break your own rule, you go against your own moral code, that's where the guilt shows up. And so when we discuss shame and guilt, right, it's a breaking of societal rules, that's the ethics, and it's, or guilt, it's a breaking of your rules, that's the morals. It gives you a little bit better idea of whenever, you're, whenever you say to somebody, you know, oh, I've, you know, I have a lot of shame about my old behaviors. Well, is it shame because you went against what your family wanted and they noticed that you were, you know, going down that path? Or is it guilt? Because a lot of what you did won't be necessarily known to everyone. A lot of what you're feeling is guilt because you know, right? If you went against a friend and nobody ever really knew about it, right? You kept it to yourself. You're going to feel guilt. Now, you would feel shame because you went against an ethical rule of society, but other people didn't know about it. So what you could be feeling is more of guilt. And really, you know, some people might say tomato, tomato, but it helps to know how you're going to categorize what you're feeling inside of you. So you know how to go about healing it, healing that trauma, mending that wound. Even if nobody knows that you ever stole money out of your mom's purse, you feel guilt for it, but you know it's also a shameful act because it goes against the rules of your family. You can go apologize for it, which would simultaneously release shame, which you feel because you went against the ethical rules of society, and it would simultaneously release some level of guilt because you've been able to make amends for what you have done. So while I did just say like a minute and a half ago that if nobody knows, you wouldn't necessarily feel shameful, um, I will I will bring that back a little bit 
and say that you can feel shame knowing you went up against a moral, broken moral code of society. But more than likely, if nobody ever found out, the more residual emotion you will be feeling is guilt. And again, tomato, tomato, right? If you know that you don't feel good about something, is it shame? Is it guilt? Does it matter how you frame it? In NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, we talk a lot about using specificity in how we label things, being specific in how we are going to label it in our minds, being specific how we are going to label it and explain it to other people, and being very specific when it comes to determining what it is we want to shift in our lives. So let's go through a little bit more about shame and guilt, because I'm not the only one who has an opinion about this. And so through my masterful research, um, I did come across a part where it talks about um, shame and guilt uh, with Brene Brown. And I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown. Um, I have torn through her book, Daring Greatly, multiple times. I have other books of hers on audio that um, I have are waiting in the wings. And this is what she says about shame and guilt, is that shame is a focus on self, whereas guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt is, I did something bad. Then she goes on to say, how many of you, if you did something that was hurtful to me, would be willing to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? How many of you would be willing to say that? Now, if you go to what I had said about shame being about societal rules and guilt being about internal rules, right? Now you've got her saying that shame is focused on the self, right? You focus on yourself breaking a, an external rule, whereas guilt is focused on the behavior, Right, you did. You know, you, you can steal money from your mom's purse to go buy drugs. That is a that is a negative behavior. That is not a behavior you would want to do. Let alone would have probably have done had you been sober. Whereas now you can focus on that was a guilty act. You were a, you did a bad thing, but you aren't necessarily a bad person. Shame is more overarching, where you actually feel that you are a bad person all around. You could open up the door for an old lady so she doesn't you know, get stuck behind a heavy door that she can't open, and yet you would still feel like you're a bad person. You might say to yourself, well, if I open up the door for another 10,000 old ladies, maybe I'll be you know, uh, able to forgive myself for the wrongs that I have done to other people. Whereas guilt might say, well, okay, I did this bad thing, and now I don't do that thing anymore, so therefore I can see myself as a different person now. Because it was a one-act Right? I don't steal from my mom anymore in her purse, so I'm not a bad person. I did a bad thing. Whereas shame is just assuming that because you did it then that you're always going to be that version of yourself. And you will hear people say that people don't change. Everybody changes. Now, are you aware of the changes? Okay, that's part of it. Also, when we say that people don't change, what you value your moral, your ethical code, right? Ethics, that is what society is deeming as the rules of their society. But do you shift around your values? Do you write down what's valuable to you? Do you go in and take an inventory of your moral character, of what's important to you, and of what the rules you want to live by? Oftentimes, I really do believe that the people who say, you know, people don't change, nobody changes, are the ones who they themselves are still basing their life and their behaviors around um, old versions of themselves. And yes, if somebody values 
um, alone time. And even now that you're sober, you still want alone time. It's not, oh, see, you're no different than you used to be. You just always want to hide away in your office. You always want to hide away in the bedroom. You couldn't be an introvert, and that's how you recharge. And nobody says that that has to change. If somebody looks at you point blank in the eyes and says, you haven't changed, and you know very fucking full well you have, because you've been taking classes and you've been going to meetings and you've been listening to this podcast, then you can realize in that moment they're projecting upon you their own internal belief system about themselves. People's belief systems about themselves are some of the hardest things to actionably shift in your life. Because you will have this belief system about yourself and you will have said these identity statements over and over and over and over to yourself for so long. I am a bad person. I am a drug addict. I am a piece of shit. I am the black sheep in the family. I am worthless. I don't deserve to be alive. You start saying that stuff to yourself as a kid and you just continuously say it. And then you expect a a month or two or 10 worth of meetings to just shift that thought process you have around yourself. It is going to take actionable steps. When you catch yourself saying, I am worthless, saying, I have worth, I'm not telling you to attach a bazillion dollars of worth to yourself, but worthless versus I have worth, you don't have to necessarily quantify the worth you feel about yourself as much as you can just begin to say that you have worth. Because worthless itself is unquantifiable. You don't necessarily tell yourself why you think you're worthless. You just say you're worthless. You might start spiraling around it and picture all these different images in your head of why you think you're worthless, but those are just pictures. So when you say, I have worth, start picturing yourself holding doors open for people or pouring a cup of coffee for your partner and bringing it to them in bed so that they can, you know, they can sit there and read their phone for a little bit longer. You do things that have worth. It's a matter of whether you are actually observant of them or not. And people who say that you haven't changed and people who start to claim those kind of things are often just projecting their own insecurities about themselves upon you. Now, circling back to shame and guilt... This feeling that your whole self is wrong or bad versus you did something wrong, right? And that's, again, when we look at it moral and ethically, if you go against ethical, ethical rules, society's ethics, they're going to want to label you as a bad person, right? It's just easier for mob mentality and mob rule to say, oh, that, they did that. They are a horrible person. They are worthless. Let's ostracize them from the tribe. Because we all still have a little of that cave person brain running on inside of us, where if somebody did something against the rules of the tribe, they could literally cause harm, if not great death to the tribe. So ostracize the person out of the tribe. Now the tribe feels safe. Now we live in a more civilized world, if you will, not all aspects of it, but certainly more than back in the day when you had to worry about, you know, Mongols running up in your village with, you know, horses and steel and taking down the whole town and burning everything to the ground. We don't live in a world where we're constantly worried about threats as massive and as horrific as that. We do live in a society that does still present some safety and fear issues. I can't argue with that. You need only look at the news for 10 minutes to make sure that they scare the hell out of you. But when you're looking at the guilt, it's that you did something wrong 
ethically, or I'm sorry, morally. You did something wrong about that broke your morals, that you broke your moral code. You wouldn't feel guilt if you did something and you didn't think you broke your own moral code. People could tell you to feel guilty for eating the last cookie in the house all they want. But if you were like, Fuck, I, don't know. I bought the cookies, I watched all of you eat five cookies, and I got the last cookie. I had one cookie to your five. I don't feel guilty for eating the last cookie. My paycheck paid for the cookies. My cookie, I'm going to enjoy eating it. You won't feel guilty if you don't believe you broke a moral rule that you held dear. The family might try to shame you about eating the cookie. But they can do their damnedest to try to push shame on you. But if you believe that deep down you did not break a moral, a moral rule, a moral code of, of behavior for yourself, people can try to thrust shame and guilt upon you all day long, and it's not going to stick. It's just not. If you don't think you did something wrong, it doesn't matter how many people try to tell you that you did something wrong. You are not going to believe that. You are going to believe. You're going to have that belief system that my moral code is more righteous than your ethical code, and therefore I don't have to feel neither shame nor guilt. So in shame is what you feel when you break this ethics of society, when you do something that goes against an external person, place, or thing, and you have this guilt when you broke one of your own rules that you did more than likely against yourself just as much as it could be against another person, place, or thing. But guilt is indeed um, concerned with one's responsibility for a harmful attitude or behavior. By contrast, shame will imply a non-moral negative self-evaluation. Again, lots of fancy words there to say that shame implies, uh, it says right here, and I took the snag this off the internet, non-moral negative self-evaluation. Right, So you're not taking your morals into the context of this decision on whether you to feel shame or not. You are making a negative self-evaluation of yourself based on what society says you should have done. So you might confuse shame and guilt still after 20 minutes of me on the microphone. It can be a little mental gymnastics, but it's very, to me, they're very two different emotions. Guilt again Guilt is a feeling you get when you did something wrong or you perceive you did something wrong. Right? You can see this and you can see this happen with kids. They'll go to do something and if nobody in the family tells them no, like you'll see it. Like they'll go to grab a cookie or they'll throw a toy across the room and they'll look to to gauge the reaction of the adults around. If nobody says anything and does anything, then they will perceive that it was okay. The adults might just be busy dealing with something else in the moment. Next thing you know, little Johnny chucks a, a Hot Wheel into the glass window, and it doesn't break it, but certainly you don't want them doing that very often. Hey, little Johnny, let's not toss metal into glass. But if none of the adults notice, or they just turn around and say, hey, little Johnny, don't do that, then the level of guilt that the child's going to feel in that moment might be inconsequential to actually getting them to shift the behavior. Now, if they do break that window, right, now, will they feel guilt? They may not even have a concept of guilt, especially if you never told them not to throw the car into the window. And again, you know how I feel about negatives and statements, so it could be something like, hey, let's keep this Let's let's keep the glass free from flying objects, especially metal, would be, to me, a more healthy way of, of telling a child, hey, let's not throw the Hot Wheel into the glass. 
Because again, the mind has to first see something and then it has to negate it. So the child will actually see themselves throwing the hot wheel into the glass um, because that's what you have commanded. You've literally commanded their brain to do that. Do not throw the metal into the glass. They will have to first see themselves throwing it and then negate that and see themselves not throwing it. Well, how are they going to see themselves not throw something? They're just going to picture themselves standing still versus, hey, let's let's keep all objects away from the window, right? They can see how there can be a spatial comparison there, keeping objects away from the window versus not throwing metal into the window. It's hard to gauge space when you say tell somebody not to do something versus it's very easy to gauge space whenever you say let's keep the metal objects five feet away from the window and let's and, and let's also uh, minimize them flying through the air. <laughs> And I know it can be mental, it can be a little mental linguistic-y. It can be a challenge. There can be this mental gymnastics where you start trying to figure out how you're going to put together sentences. And you'll notice I'm doing it right here on the microphone. And sometimes I catch myself, I'm like, did that even sound right? Because I'm literally coming up with these examples on the fly. At no point did I put in my show notes, hey, let's talk about flying Hot Wheels towards glass. It just comes up. And sometimes the examples I have aren't the greatest. But if you start to notice the behaviors that you are seeing within yourself or within your children or within people in your home or your your social circle that are no longer benefiting how you would like them to be behaving around you, and again, realizing you control no one, but you can influence by asking, hey, would you mind minimizing that kind of behavior around me? you will more than likely want to start to create some version of these sentences in your head to see which ones might come out. And you might say it five different ways until it finally lands with the other person. And that's okay, because everybody has their own way of experiencing reality and creating reality in their head. So just because it makes sense to you does not mean it's going to make sense to them. A presupposition of NLP is the meaning of communication is the response you get. So if you don't get the response you were hoping for, it's not on the other person to hear you say it five more times the exact same way, hoping that it finally gets through their quote-unquote thick skull. It's up to you to shift the way that you're saying something so that it is able to get through their filters and processes. You have them too. At some point, someone has gotten impatient with you because they have told you how to do something five times and it still hasn't clicked. And more than likely, they're telling you how to do something the same way five times. How about you try five different ways to tell them to do something once? Right? Each time it'll sound different until you finally figure out which sense, you know, touch, taste, sight, sound, smell is more prevalent in them. Or are they a why learner, what learner? Anyways, I'm getting way into that one way too much. And I did yell. So if you're listening to me on headbutts, I apologize for that. That was a vocal a vocal anomaly. <laughs> Back to guilt and shame. Thank you for uh, going down the path with me just now on you know communication and how to frame sentences. That's a whole nother episode, and I'm sure I probably already talked about it in multiple episodes before. But back to guilt and shame. One of the reasons I keep continue to give you different examples and frame it differently is because I already understand what I just told you. Not everybody is going to take in the information the same way. So I'll use some feeling words, some sight words, some sound words. I'll even throw a little bit of taste and, and, and uh, smell words in there, right? Knowing that if I continue to utilize different 
um, rep- different sensory words that different people will catch on to. And hopefully by the end, I have been able to connect this information to some aspect of your life by using words that your brain unconsciously prefers to hear. I should just do a whole episode on rep systems. So when you confuse shame and guilt, just keep in mind, it is a feeling you get when you did something wrong or perceive that you did something wrong, whereas shame is a feeling that your whole self is wrong. And it may not be related to a specific behavior or event. I get a lot of people hit me up and I have a lot of shame for my behavior. Well, what I would ask then is, well, how do you feel about your behavior? Well, I feel bad. I'm disgusting. I'm a horrible person. Okay. Do you overall think you're, do you really honestly believe that you're a horrible person through and through? Do you believe your entire beingness is horrible? Most people are going to come back and say, well, not everything about me is horrible. Okay, that's already a step in the right direction. That's already a conscious breaking of the shameful loop you've had yourself in. Okay, so you're not, you, don't, you don't believe that you're a horrible person through and through. What are some behaviors you have, you have gone through recently, some actions you have taken that would go against this belief that you're a horrible person? And it you know, let's just say, well, I held the I held the door open for a woman carrying a baby and some groceries the other day. Awesome. So in that moment, you were not a horrible person. In fact, you were you were very much contributing to this woman's um, happiness and, or at least health, mental health, because she didn't have to worry about grabbing the door and holding onto her kids and the groceries at the same time. Physically, you helped her out because she didn't you know have to figure that whole thing out. Right, you had an opportunity to connect with another human. I'm sure there was a smile or at least a glance shown. So now you you got to see some sort of contribution, some significance, a connection, some certainty that if you hold the door open for somebody, they're generally going to be very thankful that you did that for them. Um, it's if nothing else, it's a societal courtesy. That is sort of an ethical rule society has. If you see somebody coming up behind you close enough, right? And we all have that way. This is, I swear, this is part of a stand up act I used to do. But if we all have that way of trying to gauge how far away is somebody from me as I'm opening this door, and then there's almost like a timer you're trying to set off or like this this perception of depth, this depth perception that you're having, like, okay, well, they're, they're 20 feet away. And if I hold this door for them now, then that's going to be seven seconds, or they're going to feel like they need to rush to the door. So they're far enough away. I don't need to hold it. But we all know what it feels like to have somebody nipping on our heels. And you know, it is a, it's like a built in motor habit to hold that door. You don't, it's like your brain doesn't even question it. Now, I'm not saying everybody's going to do this. I'm sure some people right now are being like, damn, I, I actually make it a point not to hold the door. That's fine. I'm not, there's no judgment here. You can decide whether you're going to want to continue that behavior or not. And you might feel guilt for it. You might literally walk away and be like, ha, 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 I usurped power. I didn't hold the door. Now, you may or may not feel guilt for it. If you don't really feel that you did anything wrong, you may not feel guilt. But if you know that generally in society, people hold doors for people who are close enough to it as they're going through it, you might feel that you broke an ethical boundary of society, which might bring you some level of shame. Like, I am not a kind person because I don't hold doors open for people. Again, you can feel that you broke an ethical rule of society and still not feel guilty about it if that's just not something that you value. It's all, again, it's so much about this is subjective perspective. I mean, we talk about subjective perspective all the time on this show. It is subjective to your perspective. 
And your perspective is your point of view. It's how you see things through your eyes based on your morals, ethics, values, beliefs, opinions, right? And those are five primary filters that your mind is processing information through. So when you experience the entirety of the world coming in through your eyes and your, your, your ears and your mouth and your nose and with the way you touch and feel things, that's, those are your senses. Those are your five primary senses, right? And so when we experience the world, all that information goes in and it's run through processes and, and filters. Delete, distort, generalize. We've talked about them before. Those are your processes and your filters. Morals, ethics, values, beliefs, opinions, time, environment, attitude, personality. You have so many different filters. And those create your reality in your head. And no two people will ever see the world the same way. This is why anyone, including me, who says you create your world inside your head is absolutely right. Because it's all about the way you perceive the outside world in your head that creates your entire world inside your head, which then creates the way you behave out into the world and the thoughts and the feelings that you have. So again, with shame and guilt, you don't necessarily have to feel any of that. You don't have to feel any of it. But a lot of us feel deeply. And because we felt so deeply when we were younger and we continue to to feel deeply throughout our lives, it actually fueled the addiction. I mean, once the habit and the you know the midbrain and and uh, the the midbrain and the limbic system got involved and started convincing you that you know this was all pleasurable, then it just became super duper habit. But because we felt things so deeply, when emotions would come at us, and somebody in the tribe recently had this happen, you know, a, a, a influx of emotions, right, and wash away two three weeks of sobriety, right. That's another point I don't know if I've ever made. You don't have to be sober to be in the tribe. Certainly, if you found me through the show, that means you are in the preparation and the, you know, you're in that deliberation preparation phase. You don't necessarily have to be in action phase. And you can go back and forth between the preparation and the action phase. And it's why the tribe exists, to create a community for all of us to uplift each other. So if I haven't made that clear in the past, is you don't have to be sober to be in the tribe. It is just for those who are seeking to raise their level up. And for, yes, many of the people in the tribe, it is around alcohol and drugs. So that just, anyway, sidebar. But you don't necessarily, you know, when, so therefore, going back to what I was just saying, we felt emotions deeply. So now we still feel emotions deeply, but we're unable to or unwilling to go back to the old behavior that we used to utilize to mute our emotions. Right? And when those emotions become so overpowering and we're still in those early stages of sobriety, yes, we can go back the way we used to be. But what's really funny, not even funny, but it, it, it's just the juxtaposition we find ourselves in, is when you're in those beginning stages of sobriety, you're often thinking about how much you'd like to be intoxicated. But then you get intoxicated and all you can think about is how much you want to be sober. It's the juxtaposition of you have sobriety in one hand and you could just not use and then that would keep you sober. But then the emotional flux comes in. Our brain wants to go back to the same things that used to bring us pleasure. Again, midbrain and limbic system get a party going on. The prefrontal cortex where rational thought exists, it doesn't get a say. Because it's the third stage in the brain. It's the front part, whereas the midbrain and the limbic system are way closer to the spinal column where all the nerve endings are sending you the information from your five senses. 
So the limbic system and, and the midbrain are making the decision, and the, and the rational thought brain doesn't even have a chance to chime in. It's on the outside of the glass looking in. So no wonder at the beginning stages of your sobriety do you want to keep your um, emotional fluctuations at a minimum. You want to be monitoring that. And I'll, lastly, I'll say about this is, you know, this toxic shame, it came up a couple times in my research, is this feeling that you're worthless. Uh, and it happened, and I took this directly from the internet. I have no idea if I chopped it up because I chop up a lot of my notes and turn them into my own little sentences. Um, but what I did take from what I read was um, toxic shame happens when other people treat you poorly and you turn that treatment into a belief about yourself. You're most vulnerable to this type of poor treatment during childhood or as a teen. Our addictions, even if we didn't start imbibing and taking and all that jazz, the drugs and alcohol, they started as a child. And if you were made to feel worthless, and again, I know nobody can make you feel anything, but as a child and a teenager, we don't under, we don't understand this concept as well as we we. Hopefully, we do when we get become adults. Definitely, as a child, I mean, if somebody tells you that you're a bad kid, you're a stupid kid, you don't, rational thought doesn't even really exist yet in your head. So you're taking their words for the truth. This is why kids are always listening for lies with adults because they don't understand this idea of a white lie or fibbing or bending the truth a little bit in order to hurt, help you know not hurt somebody's feelings. Right? They don't gather that. To them, it's black and white. It's a lie or it's truth. I see this in my nieces and nephews. They'll know they did something wrong. They will blatantly know that they're lying. And then when they, they catch them in it, it's like they'll either have some level of guilt or shame. right? Guilt if they believe that they broke. But they take that back. I would think it'd be hard for a child to have guilt because they don't really have a moral code yet. But they definitely understand the ethical code, the rules of the house the rules that the house wants to live by. So would a kid feel, would a three-year-old feel guilty? Probably not if they broke something or ate the cookie. But would they feel shame whenever they had to look at, you know, their parents got down on them and then, you know, made them feel bad? Absolutely. So this toxic shame could be if, as a child, it was just, you just consistently beat into your head that you were worthless, that you had no worth, that you were, you were stupid, you were dumb, you were never going to amount to anything. Right. And is it ever any wonder whenever those children become teenagers, they become bullies or they become extremely introverted and then they go off, get into addictive substances and then repeat the cycle. So be on the lookout in your own world, especially if you're around children and teenagers on how maybe some of the things you're saying could be um, taken by them as toxic shame. Understanding that they don't have that fully developed prefrontal cortex yet. Right, this is potentially one of the main reasons why you know the middle school and the high school, the bullying and the picking on each other, and this this sort of jostling for position in the social hierarchy of the high school world can be quite damaging to people. If they are bullied a lot, if they are picked on, if they're ostracized by the group, if they're made fun of for what they wear, or how they smell, or what they eat, it, to me is. It, it, it is it is a jungle in those places because you have all of these people who have no concept of this moral code, you know, or a very little concept of it as they start to get 13, 14, 15, 16 and above, 
but they, they definitely understand the ethical code, and they are doing everything they can to shimmy around it to make sure that they can feel good about themselves without bringing upon any level of shame from the adults who they perceive as judging them. And then all of a sudden, alcohol and drugs get introduced, and before you know it, you have an entire you know school addicted to meth, entire school addicted to drugs. Because the brain is just looking for something to mute the emotions that it doesn't quite understand how to identify, let alone to handle and manage. All right, guys, that's my guilt. That's my shame. That's my morals, ethics, values. I, once again, had, (laughs) you should see how many more show notes I didn't even get to. Um, This episode was technically supposed to be on asking yourself specific questions, and we didn't do that. But you know what? Um, I I will close out on this. When you want to, and I'm going to be doing an uh, Instagram, Facebook Live on this soon, so depending on when you listen to this, you can go back and find it in the archives. Um, if I can figure out a way to get it all saved on social media, you should be able to find it in there. But I'm going to start talking to people about how to specifically ask yourself how you're going to achieve something. Because a lot of people would want to say, well, I don't want to feel worthless anymore. Okay, so you want to flip that around because you're using a don't. Right, so you're using a negative, and the brain doesn't understand that. So you don't want to feel worthless. So my first question back is, well, what do you want to feel? Uh, I want to feel that I have worth. How specifically will you know you have worth? What would be your answer? Um, whenever I um, do something kind for one of my family members, what specifically can you do that is kind for one of your family members? Uh, my daughter plays volleyball on Tuesday mornings, and you know I could pack her a lunch. When specifically would you pack her the lunch? I could do it Monday night before school. And what specifically would you put in the lunch? She really likes peanut butter and jelly and Doritos. Excellent. Right? You want to keep chunking it down, And chunking it down is an NLP term, right? You chunk up, chunk down. Basically, you just want to break it down till you finally get to the exact action that will instigate the feeling of worth within you. Because if you leave it vague, you know, I want people to love me more. How specifically would you feel loved more? I want want people to care about my, what I say more. How specifically will you feel that people care more about what you say? I want to lose weight. Well, how much weight specifically would you like to lose? Or why specifically would you like to release this weight? Now you can start getting into value statements. When you ask somebody why, it's generally going to be a values-based question. When you ask somebody when or where, it's going to now become an action-based question or statement. When I say, well, when would you do that? Where in your life would you do that? Now it's more action. So now you're taking it away from values and you're putting it out into the quote unquote real world. When you ask somebody, why do you like to save money? You're, that whatever their response back is, right? Why? Because, uh, because I want to go, you know, because I want to buy a super awesome car, right? People want awesome cars because of how they value things. Why do you want a super awesome car? Oh man, you know, it's just fast and I love fast, Okay. Why do you love fast? If you keep asking them why, you will chunk it down into a value statement. Because I, you know, I, um, I love adrenaline. I love feeling fancy. I love it when people realize I have money. Why do you love it when people realize you have money? Right? It makes them it makes them think I'm important. Boom. There is part of your six human needs is significance. 
importance is significance, therefore they value significance, right? It's so, when you ask a why-based question, you're, I swear I should just do a whole episode on this. When you ask a why-based question, you're going to get values-based answers. When you ask a when or where kind of question, right? How, when, where, what, you know, it's like the five W's and the H, who, what, when, where, why, how, all of them, except for why, are going to be action statements, right? Who would be there? What would be happening? When would you do it? Where would this occur? Why? Yep, that's the values. How? Yep, I'm correct. So all of them are going to be basically the action. Who would be there? Right? That's going to be an action of other people there. Who, what, when, where, why, how? All of them are action except for why, which is values. So when you want to, when you say something like, I want to feel better, well, when you when you ask somebody why do you want to feel better, you're going to start getting value um, value specific answers. When you say, well, how would you like to feel better? When would you like to feel better? Where would you like to feel better? What does feeling better, what does feeling better experience to you? Um, who would specifically you like to help you feel better? These become action questions and they become ways that you get people to be more specific. It's in that specificity that you can actually build a plan and a strategy to accomplish what it is you just told me you wanted. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with how long the episodes go. I've yet to have anyone complain about it. And the other day I listened to a podcast. It was two hours long. I was like, well, at least <laughs> I'm not going two hours. So I wish I had a button that had some applause and people be like, I'm not going two hours. <laughs> right. Um, Maybe some city says, oh, you know, I just want to pay better attention. When would you like to pay better attention when I'm at class? How could you begin to pay better attention? Um, I could stop looking at my phone underneath the desk. If you say, well, why were you looking at your phone? You're going to start getting a value-based answer. But if you keep asking the other W's and the H, right, then now you help them get more and more specific. Well, what can you do tomorrow whenever you um, find yourself not paying attention? I can put the phone down. I can look up. You know, what else could you do? I could sit up straight in my chair. Um, what about when the teacher asks a question of the class? You know, right? Open, very open into statement. Oh, you know, I could raise my hand, right? You would start to get them to answer things more action oriented. Why is this a really great way to finish up the guilt and shame? Because a lot of times when you guys come to me and you say, well, I have a lot of shame. And I'm like, okay, where in your life do you feel shame? Around my relationship with my mother. Excellent. And when did you start to feel this shame around this relationship with your mother? And let's just go back to the example of stealing money out of her purse. You know, well, when I was 13 years old, I started stealing money out of her purse. And how is your behavior now different than your behavior then? Well, I don't steal money from her purse and we have a very loving relationship. And where in your life have you begun to show that you also are somebody who can be trusted and, and has honesty as one of their core values now, as opposed to back then when you would steal money from your mother's purse? Now you can start to point out other areas. Now all of a sudden, this shame of I'm a horrible person, I'm a piece of shit, it can, you can start to release and say, wow, okay, that's who I was. That is not who I am now. Who you were is not who you are. I'm going to put that on a damn shirt and sell it on Zazzle. Who you were is not who you are. 
Right? You may have been a person who held the door open yesterday, but today you got fired from your job, you're pissed off at the world, and you yank that convenience store door open and you just barrel yourself back to where Budweiser's for sale. Yesterday, you were loving sobriety and happy with life and holding doors open for little old ladies with canes, and today you're ripping doors open, flinging them in front of other people's faces as they're walking right behind you, and you're barreling your way right towards that beer because that's what your brain is programmed to do when you're unhappy. Who you were yesterday is not who you are today. Each day is another day to prove to yourself that you are the version of yourself that you are seeking to achieve to be. It's not exhausting. It is just life. Look in the mirror. That's your competition. Who were you yesterday? What can you do today to show yourself that you are growing today? Where in your life can you do something powerful today? When will you do that powerful action today? How will you do that powerful action? Will there be anybody else there? Does anybody else even need to be there for you to feel that you have done a powerful action to better your freaking life? I toil away in an office that I, I am surrounded by all the possessions that I enjoy having. Most of the stuff I do, nobody notices, doesn't even see. Putting together this Jesse Mogul show for social media so I can just start sharing more of this stuff. And, you know, again, I just I just love talking about all this stuff. Um, the only reason why anybody in the public sphere even knows that this stuff is getting ready to happen is because I have literally, not even, not even making this up, I have spent about four hours testing software called OneStream and getting it to connect with Zoom and then Facebook and then both Instagram accounts so I could try cast them all to different places. And in order to test it, I have to actually go live. So there have been some people who have literally sat there on the camera uh, for 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes yesterday, um, watching me toil away from a software. Um, but most people would never know that I spend, you know, hours upon hours learning how to send out an email so people can know about the next training or so that I can, you know, uh, send out my newsletter so that people can feel cool, uplifted information come to their box. But it took me six hours to learn MailChimp and then to connect it to my CRM. Like nobody really honestly cares, right? But you see the after effects of it. You don't see all of the hard work and the editing and all the jazz and the writing and, and, the, and the research and the reading and the writing on, you know, dry erase boards in the office. Like you're, you don't see all that stuff that I do, but you see the product of all of that hard work. I really want to highlight that this is what you are doing too. You, people may not see the hard work of the gym. They may not see that you skip the cookies at 10 o'clock at night and opt for water in an early bedtime. They may not see all of the hard work you're doing. You might do a lot of your hardest work in the shadows with nobody around to cheer you on. A la, you know, the Michael Phelpses of the world, you know? I mean, how many mornings was that guy swimming in a pool and nobody was cheering him on? But at some point, the whole world knew exactly who that person was because he went off and won seven gold medals at the Beijing Olympics. After spending thousands upon thousands of hours toiling away, working his ass off in the shadows with nobody cheering him on. You are the same way. You are going to do a majority of your work. Nobody's even going to notice it. 
It could be by going to a meeting and having an epiphany because of what somebody said and deciding in that moment that you are going to change this belief or this value or this thing about yourself because that's who you were in the past and you don't want to be that version of yourself anymore. You want to be this newer version. So moving forward each day, you're going to practice vulnerability or honesty or connection. Three, four years ago, pre-COVID, I did not care about being near my family. I did not care about contacting my friends. I wanted to live in my own little Jesse world and do my own little Jesse thing. And I didn't really care if I kept up and maintained any of my old friendships. And I definitely didn't care how close I was to my family members. Then all of a sudden, here comes year two and a half, year three, I start to shift the way that I feel about those who've been closest to me, who've been on this journey the longest with me. And then COVID comes. I start to watch some of my friends and family members get really sick. I lose a couple friends and family members to COVID. I watch other people lose their loved ones to COVID. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, life is short. Love hard. Next thing you know, I'm leaving Los Angeles for Huntsville, Alabama. I would not have, it would never have thought that this is what I was going to do at year two when I started the podcast. Now, Kaylin will remind me that like at episode eight or something like that, I came to Huntsville and talked about how much I probably could live here one day. But even then, I never thought it was a reality. It was just a fun thing to talk about. But yet here I am at year, you know, I think, what did we figure out? Uh, today's my sober anniversary, so I think I'm at um, 68 months sober as of today. It's the 13th of every month. Um, so, you know, here back then, episode eight, you know, I was at two years and two months right? 20 month, 26. And here we are at month, um, 68, 26 to 68, you know, 42 months later, I'm literally living in Huntsville because I decided to change my values around loving my family, loving my friends and being connected to them. Cause I started asking myself the question, how specifically can I love my family more? How specifically can I be more involved in their lives? How specifically can I be a part of what they're experiencing? How specifically can I bring value and love and connection into their life? And eventually I just kept circling back to the fact that I live too far away and I don't even enjoy California anymore. So let's pack it all up. It's like the opposite of the Beverly Hillbillies. California is the place I don't want to be. So I loaded up my truck and I moved myself across the state. And then across the country, and that song sort of, I didn't really think that through before I started singing it. All right, I've got other things I could have said, but this is this has been fun. I'm really glad that we had a chance. So, in summary, morals, you break in your own code. Ethics, that's about societal code. Right? Again, morals is your code. Ethics is society's code. Values are the things that you find important in your life that you attach identity statements to, like I am. I am as an identity statement. So you attach things that are important to you, your values, to yourself through identity statements. That becomes part of your belief system. And your belief system is integral in whether you believe that you're breaking or setting or standing up for your morals and your ethical codes. When you think about guilt and shame, guilt is an action. I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. I am bad. I did something that had no worth versus I am a person of no worth. You can also connect shame as being something that happens whenever you break an ethical code, society's code for behavior, whereas guilt is something that occurs more heavily whenever you break your own code. And you can have shame about your behavior, even if society doesn't know that you did it, because you will know that you broke societal's code. 
But the likelihood that you will feel that shame about breaking society's code if no one in society knows is absolutely dependent upon your ability to feel guilt. Because if you don't feel guilt about things in your life, then why on earth would you feel shame about breaking societal rule if no one in society knows? Because first it would be guilt. But if you broke a societal rule that you did not believe broke a moral rule, then again, the likelihood that you would feel shame or guilt around the ethical breaking of societal's rules is very much minimized. I know. Even as I say it, I'm like, what, I understand what the frick I just said? And then be specific. Right. Remember, who, what, when, where, why, how. Why is a value dependent? Why is going to bring you to value statements? All the other ones, who, what, when, where, what, who, what, when, where, why, what, who, what, when, where, who, what, when, where, why, what, how. Who, what, when, where, what, and how are action. Who, what, when, where, what, and how are action. Who, what, when, where, what, and how are action. I'm going to keep repeating it till you guys finally get it. Who, what, when, where, what, and how are action. When you ask those, well, you know, where would you like to feel less shame? When will you feel less shame? Who will be around you when you feel less shame? What will you be doing so that you release the feeling of shame? Right? Those are action-based questions, whereas why is going to get you value-based statements. So when you start to release shame and guilt, be very specific. How specifically do you want to feel instead? And then whatever it is you want to feel instead, wrap it around the who, what, when, where, what, who, what, when, where, what, and how. Wrap it around those questions. I'll put this in the show notes. All right, my friends, that's it. Thanks for sticking around for 56 minutes and, and some change. Um, super dope. This has been a great episode. And um, I will continue to dive in deeper and deeper and deeper. All of this is leading to somewhere. And part of this is just going through all of this information and material one to help me instill it deeper into my psyche. Um, and then obviously it's going to be going into the book next year. So check this out. If y'all would like to learn some neuro-linguistic programming, I am teaching a class for, uh, about 12 weeks starting at the end of October. Um, by all means, please reach out and let me know if that's something that you are interested in. You can find me on all the social medias. All the links that you're going to need to find to ever reach out to me are absolutely going to be in the show notes. Do not hesitate to reach out. Not hard to find me. I'm the only Jesse Mogul on the planet or at From Sobriety to Recovery. Um, definitely, um, I will all be. I see Instagram messages way more than I see the other ones because Facebook loves to change where the hell you find stuff all the time. Um, not all the time. That's a definitive I should, I'm using inappropriately. They, they change it frequently enough that I get confused. So obviously Instagram is a great way. And again, any other links that you need to find are in the show notes. If you would like to support this store, I have a Patreon account at Jesse Mogul. I have a stand store, um, again, at Jesse Mogul. If you would like to, you know, participate in the, the tribal hub, that's less than 10 bucks a month right now. It's on special until the end of the year. So jump in. We got a Voxer thread. People are typing in there and talking all the time and about what they've learning, what they're learning in the hub, what they learn from the show, what they're learning about themselves as they journey from sobriety to recovery. Um, even the slip ups and the mishaps and the relapses are all discussed in there, and it's done in an encouraging, loving way. We don't judge. 
We do not judge. We seek to understand each other at a higher level. But if you just want to participate by, you know, supporting the show, uh, Patreon is certainly a way to do that as well as my stand store. Um, you know, I'm driving all over the state of Alabama and Tennessee, going to addiction recovery centers and interviewing people for the books and whatnot. So by all means, if you would like to be a part of that, um, later on this year, I'm actually going to introduce a way that those who do support the show will actually be able to have um, their name in the book that I will be releasing next year. So lots of exciting things happening as always. Inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. Every day is the best day of our lives because we wake up sober. And you know what? Even if you don't wake up sober, it's still a damn good day because you woke up. Shout out to Sunshine Glow On. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.